Well, I have to tell you, between you and me, I am so worn out with people's opinions. It's kind of like, you remember in the, the Grinch who stole Christmas, he said, noise, 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 everything's noise, tired of the noise. Question is, who says what is right and wrong? Who says? Who's in charge? That's going to be the title of our thing. When it comes to the big issues of life, who says? Who's right? Last week, a popular comedian, his name's Norm MacDonald, he was on SNL, he died. And a lot of videos are being posted. Brian, I was watching your video, and, and this one video is very interesting. Norm MacDonald claims to be a believer in God before he died. Don't know specifically what he believed. But he was talking to a, it's like a podcast. He's talking to an interviewer, and this interviewer was an atheist. And the interviewer was a nice guy, and he had Norm on, and he wanted to be nice to Norm, so he wanted to consider the possibilities of an afterlife. He was being very kind to Norm, and he wasn't your normal snarky atheist who just laughs. He's like, yeah. And here's what he said. He said, yeah, I think it would be great if there was something after death. I really do. I think it would be fantastic if life transferred to another realm. Wouldn't that be so cool? And he even said this, I think it would be great if after we die, we wake up to see that there is life after all. That would be great, trying to be nice to Norm. But he talked about the things of eternity, heaven and hell, like you talk about the toppings on banana split, you know, like, oh, that'd be great, you know. It would be great to have caramel and chocolate on top of the banana while you're sitting next to the angel in heaven. Oh, it's great. It's great. Most people these days think the idea of eternity with God is just something that is a frivolous topic of discussion. But think about it. Think about it a second. Who cares what you think would be great? Who cares what you want, honestly? Who cares if you think it'd be fantastic? Who cares what the consensus or the popular large group thinks? Who cares? Does anybody know? Does anybody actually know? Does anybody have the answers? Or as Chicago says, anybody really know what time it is? Does anybody really care? And if there is anybody who knows and knows for sure, I want to listen. Today we come across the man who knows. He knows. I mean, he really knows. And he's going to prove his knowledge by working a miracle. And the purpose of working that miracle is to see that he has authority to do what he says. And if he has authority to do what he says, then what he says that we don't see, he has the same authority. One writer said the miracle we're going to look at is the perfect miracle because it shows the absolute power of the man that we must listen to. So the title today is Who Says? And you'll see why. If you can follow along with me, we're going to read verses 1 through 7 of Matthew 9. I'm going to be reading from the NLT. Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. If you remember last time Derek preached, he preached about how Jesus went across the lake to this place, the Gerasenes, where those men were 
demon-possessed, and he threw the demons out in the pigs, and they ran into the water. Well, he got back in the boat after that story, and he goes back home, which means he goes back to Capernaum. It's actually where Peter lives. It's where he got his first disciples. So he goes back to his own town. Verse 2. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Be encouraged, my child. Your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law said to themselves, That's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you have such evil thoughts in your heart? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So, I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and he said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up and he went home. Fear swept through the crowd as they saw this happen, and they praised God for giving humans such authority. The details of the story are really clear-cut, very straightforward. A large crowd is listening to Jesus teach. He's a great teacher, and so crowds gather. I can't wait to hear him, his own voice. I can't wait to hear his own voice, but I, but I guarantee you people love just listening to Jesus. And they gathered around, and they gathered to hear his talk. In the middle of his talk, a group brought a paralyzed man to Jesus. Paralyzed mean he had no ability to walk, unable to walk. So they brought him to Jesus to be healed. That's what they were hoping. Jesus sees the faith of his friends, his heart breaks, and he speaks very kindly, and he says, sons, your sins are forgiven. And at that exact moment, right when he said that, do you know nothing happened? Nothing happened. But it sure did make the religious leaders mad. They were ticked off. And Jesus knew it would make them mad because he can read their minds. Do you know Jesus can still read your mind right now as you're sitting there? And I know he's saying some of you, stop not listening to Chris. Listen right now. Seeing if you're listening. Anyhow. So then... He confronts their pride, and he asks them a question, and he ticks them off even more, and we're going to see that in a second. And then he tells the man, get up, take up your mat, and sure enough, the guy leaps up, jumps right up, and as he jumps right up, it says the crowd was scared to death. But they also were rejoicing. It's a strange story. So the question is, what are we to learn from it, and how does it relate to me, or do we just tell stories? That's what the purpose of church is, is to let you go. Isn't that a nice story? Go home now? No, we tell stories to say, if this happened then, it's still happening now because Jesus is still alive. So what do we learn from this? I think we're going to learn three things, and they're incredibly important things. The first one is this. Forgiveness is everything. It's everything. So let's backtrack a second. When I first read this story, so sometimes I'll go into stories and, and how I prepare is I, I, I try to wash my mind like it's the first time I've ever heard this story before because you get used to stories. So as I'm reading this story, 
And to take an honest look, it actually frustrated me, frustrates me. The man that has been brought before Jesus, he has come because he wants to be healed. That's what he wants. He hasn't been able to walk his whole life. Imagine he's a man, and his whole life must have been one where he just struggled with pain and despair because he cannot do what everybody else can do. As a kid, he couldn't play with other kids. He can't work a tough job because he can't walk. So he comes to Jesus because he wants to be healed. The other gospel accounts say he was so, so desperate that they ripped open the ceiling because crowds are crowding in, and they dropped him through. If you ever watch... The, um, oh, what's that new movie? What is it? The Chosen. Thank you. They do a good job of that, of that story. He just wanted to be healed. He's desperate. So it says when Jesus sees him, it's obvious he has compassion on him, but here's what he said. Your sins are forgiven. Now when I read that, I say, wait, wait a minute. What? That's it? Your sins are forgiven? No healing? Because I'll tell you, I, would call, I want results. I want results right now. If that's where the story stopped, I'd be let down. It's like praying for my sister Laura. She's the age of 61 years old. She's had the mind of a three or six month old baby her whole life. My dad prayed for her his whole life. My mom's prayed for her almost every day. I've prayed for her. There she is, still in the same she can't talk, she can't walk, she just drools. She rocks back and forth like that. She hasn't been healed. The only consolation you get from my sister is, oh, just wait till you see her in heaven. She'll be fully alive there. But what about today? What about today? People in our own church need healing right now. Doesn't God see the pain? Is telling someone they're forgiven enough? Or is it a way to let God off the hook because no healing occurred? Kind of make up for them. Have you ever been seeing a Christian healing service or gone to one where thousands of people come with crutches and wheelchairs and most of them will leave with crutches and wheelchairs and then people say, but at least they heard the gospel. Is that enough? Is that just a consolation prize? As I was studying this passage, one commentator I was reading asked a very tough question. And I want you to think through this a second. Here's what he asked. What is worse, being paralyzed or being ravaged by sin? It's a tough question to answer because we want immediate results. And to ask that, especially when you're hurting, doesn't seem fair, but it does need to be addressed. And this is why we address these things. What is worse, being paralyzed or ravaged by sin? And I think there's three reasons why forgiveness is everything. Forgiveness is everything because it is the first step to real healing. In God's economy, the way God works, especially in Scripture, True healing starts in the soul, then starts working out to the physical. The physical is always related to the spiritual. Psalm 103, verse 3 says, God forgives all your sins and heals all your iniquities, as if that's the order. Psalm 41 says, The Lord sustains him on his sickbed, in his illness. You restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, 
for I have sinned against you. There seems to be a direct link finding favor with God and health for the body. Even the Jews believed that during Jesus' day. I don't know how, how deep I can speak to this because when people might be hearing me who might be suffering and saying, but I've asked for forgiveness, what more sins have I done? All I want to point out is there is a tendency in our culture, the Western culture, to separate the body from the soul. Medicine is amazing. It's a, it's a wonder. But science often just looks at people like a specimen to just take care of. And often it forgets about the heart. I remember doing counseling, and when you go into the hospital and somebody's dying, what, what do you talk about? Because normally all everybody talks about is, how do we heal? How do we heal? How do we heal? As a pastor, I've realized my job is to ask two questions. How are your relationships before you go, and are you ready to see God? They, they both matter. James 5, 15 to 16 is really clear about this. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There's a relationship. Are people sick because they sinned? I don't want to make that blanket statement, but I would say this. Each person should constantly be examining their own heart. Second reason why forgiveness is everything is because physical healing on this earth is always a temporal condition. Forgiveness, however, is eternal in scope and duration. We're all going to die. The grave is awaiting us all. But so is life after the grave. Did you know that? So once I go into the grave, I'm still going to live. Daniel 12.2 says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth. So people will die going to dust of the earth. Multitudes, that means hundreds of thousands of people. Some will be risen to everlasting life. Some will be risen to everlasting shame and contempt. Ooh, that's why forgiveness is really everything. And then the third thing is forgiveness is the reason Jesus came. That's the whole reason he came the first time. Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So sin is the issue, and we need to realize sin is really bad. Like it's really bad. We've forgotten this. We almost laugh at it. We talk about sin like we talk about toppings on a banana split. But from the third chapter in Genesis, just the third chapter in Genesis, to this very moment, the main problem in the world, in your life, is sin. Sin is the root of all pain, sorrow, wickedness, hatred, falseness, and misery. The world's not the way it's supposed to be. A man in his 40s is not supposed to have a massive heart attack and die. A dear friend is not supposed to be ravaged by ALS and then fade away to the grave. Sin is killing us. 
So I'd say maybe, just maybe, we will learn to take the cross very seriously. And we'll stop playing around with sin. I would say we need to stop playing around with sin, especially when it comes to sexual sin. Because I think sexual sin is American society's biggest problem. By far. Proverbs 6, 27 and 28 asks this question. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? In other words, will you stop playing with fire? Second thing we learned from this whole story is not only is forgiveness everything, but it's only God who can forgive. So as we read further in the story, we are going to see that it was Jesus' intention the whole time to heal this man. It wasn't just to say, your sins are forgiven. But he also wanted to reveal his authority to the world and expose the arrogance, expose the haughtiness of the religious gatekeepers, of the leaders who thought they were the ones in control. There are so many people in our world that think they're in control. Just turn on the TV and everybody thinks they know what's right. It's crazy. That atheist thought he was a heavenly gatekeeper. It's the elite cast of important people who know all and can tell others how to live their lives. Jesus is once and for all in this, in this miracle saying, no, I'm the only one. I'm it. Not only am the, I'm the only one who can forgive sins, I'm the only one with authority. And you'll see what I mean in a second. So look what happens in verse 3 to 6. Some of the teachers of the religious law said to themselves, that's blasphemy to forgive sins. Does he think he's God? Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he asked them, uh, why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sin. So he's proving something. His authority. His power. So when we opened up this message, I kept asking the question, who says? Like, who said? That has always been the question of people through the ages. Who is the one that is actually telling the truth? Jesus, in this parable, is saying, I am. He is the one that is the only authority, and that's why the scribes are so mad. And what we're going to see, the reason why Jesus can forgive sins is because he's going to claim God. According to the Old Testament, it says God alone can forgive sins, Psalm 103. But there's another interesting passage, Psalm 51.4. David said, against God and God alone have I sinned. So when David had sinned against Bathsheba and sinned against Uriah, he said really the original offense is against God and God alone because God's the one that set up the law that says thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not trespass. So David said really it's against God that I sin. So when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, the scribes instantly hear Jesus saying I am God. He knows what they were thinking, so he plays a little game with them. It's called, which is harder? So the game Jesus plays with the scribes is, which is harder? Is it harder to forgive sin or to tell a lame man to walk? Pick up his bed and get up. 
For the Jew, it's a tricky answer, and here's the reason why. In one sense, which we all know, it's harder to tell a man to get up and walk because the moment he gets up and walk, the test proves that I can do it. If he doesn't get up and walk, it proves he can't do it. There's visible proof. It's visible proof. And that's the point of this miracle. The external miracle proves that he also has the power to accomplish the internal miracle. You could say it like this. If he actually has the power to raise a lame man on his feet, he also has the power to restore your sinful soul. That's amazing. But forgiving sins, and this is where I want you to think, because this is the most important part of the message. Forgiving sins from a human being to the Jew is impossible. Look at it like this. Let's say I have a friend, and his name is Buddy Bear. Okay, Buddy Bear is my friend. Buddy Bear comes up to me, and Buddy Bear says, I need $5,000. Chris, could you loan me $5,000? I will promise to pay it back in one month. Well, let's say after a month, Buddy Bear can't pay back $5,000. He owes me $5,000. And let's see, you hear me talking to Buddy Bear, and Buddy Bear said, I can't pay it back. And, so, and you come up to Buddy Bear, and you go, don't worry about it. You don't need to pay Chris back. Don't pay him back. And I hear you saying that, and I'm like, who gives you the right to tell Buddy Bear he doesn't have to pay me back? Well, don't you feel sorry for Buddy Bear? A guy with a name like that, you've got to feel sorry for Buddy Bear. Yeah, but it's between me and Buddy Bear. Get out of this deal. It's silly for somebody to forgive somebody for something they did against me. That's what makes the scribes so furious. Jesus is forgiving a debt that is supposed to be between the lame man and God, so he is exercising an authority they don't think is rightfully his. What right does Jesus have to say God's fine? The only way they can figure is he's saying he's God. Yes. Yes. A person owes the eternal holy God payment, and Jesus forgives it. Who does he think he is? God. Even more than that, I want to show you something amazing. Look at Matthew 9. In verse 6, he says, I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. In your Bible, Son of Man should be capitalized. You see it capitalized there? The reason why, because that's capitalization means it's a specific person. So who is the specific Son of Man? Well, if we go back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, you need to go there a second. Daniel chapter 7. There is a specific person in Daniel 7 that's named the Son of Man. And Jesus is saying, I am He. And let's read about the Son of Man in the book of Daniel. And I want you to imagine, use your brains as you read the Bible. Let it, let your imagination go crazy. Book of Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. Daniel's a prophet. God gives him a vision, so he writes it down. Holy Spirit is working through Daniel. Daniel writes it down. This vision was written 500 years before Matthew chapter 9. He begins in verse 7. Daniel says, my vision that night, I, I saw, be, oh, let's start actually in verse 9. Sorry about that. So, uh, Daniel 7, 9. I watched, Daniel writes, 
as thrones were put in place. That means authority to rule. Anytime you hear thorns, thorns are put in place. So imagine he sees these golden thorns, or uh, golden thrones. Sorry, did I say thorn? Thrones, Chris. Thrones. That's hard to say thorny thrones. Say that three times fast. It's hard. I watched as thrones were put in place, and the Ancient One sat down to judge. Who's the Ancient One? God the Father. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire. Every time you read there's fire around the throne, it means he's sitting down to judge. Usually fire's wrath for sin. And a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Wait a second. Millions? Yeah, millions. And then it says, many millions attended him. Okay, in the Old Testament, one angel could kill 100,000 men. Millions of angels. And millions of millions of angels are attending, serving this one God. Millions of angels. Not these fat little babies that shoot arrows. These gigantic, massive beings. Okay, so that means he's powerful. Go to verse 13. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. So there's this amazing guy that comes into the presence of God. He's human. That's why they use the word son of man. But it says about him, he was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all nations of the world. So that people of every race and nation language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Jesus says, that's me. And the Jews are like, who do you, what? So, I mean, if we, if we take this to right now, like you can say, that's a really cool passage. No, no, the God right now that's listening to me is him. He's the son of man. The one I pray to Mark Lindsay for, he's, that's him. He is all authority, all power, all rule right now. Right now, he has the right to say whatever's true, whatever's right, it's him. But wait a minute, it gets, we have to go one step further, and you're not going to like this. We need to go one step further. This is what convicted me all week. So, if Jesus is actually the Son of Man, which he is the Son of Man, uh, we should be able to see why this statement would make the scribes upset. Because he's saying, I have that authority. I have the authority to heal. But, and so they asked, whose authority? And he just said, by this authority. But I think the bigger question is this. The question is not by whose authority does Jesus heal, but rather, to me, the question really is, by whose authority do you sin? Who gives you the right? Who gives you the right to ignore the decrees of the living God? We can't even heal as Jesus can, and yet we think we could ignore the things God considers sin. The question of authority needs to be pointed to each of us. Who gives us the right to change the terms that God has laid down? Let me put it like this. I'll, I'll take it a step even deeper. Our current culture 
They do this every single day. The popular opinion around our country, and it's agreed upon by all of the talking heads, that it's okay for a man to marry a man. And more and more churches are even sanctioning this. My question is, who says? Who says? You know what I read? Jesus said a man will marry a woman and be united to her, and the two will become one That's what the Son of Man said. Who has the right to override what the Son of Man said? And then you know what our culture says? They say, now there's this bandwagon to say it's okay to change your gender. Who said? Book of Genesis, it says God made man male and female. There's no two-spirit nature in man. Male and female in the same. Who says? Who has the right to override what has been decreed by the ancient of days. Only the Son of Man. And then the rest of what God has said is now categorically ignored. Is it okay to lust? Is it okay to fight? Lie? Take the Lord's name in vain? Beat your wife and kids? Steal money? Not pay taxes? Make fun of Christ's bride to church? Who says you can do those things? But we just do them willy-nilly. By what authority? That's the question. To me, I was thinking through, we, we, we yawn at sin like we do. We treat it like toppings on a banana split. And I was thinking through, trying this angle, what right do I have to override God, to speak on his behalf, to make a trade with Buddy Bear, even though I didn't make a deal with him? We don't. So the whole, to me, the whole problem with sin, it convinces the sinner It convinces the sinner they will somehow be forgiven for doing evil, even though God never sanctioned it. So I'd say be very careful how you think you can speak for God. You cannot. And if you think you can speak for God, if you think you can override what God has already said, I got a question for you. Can you heal anybody? I got a couple people I want you to heal. Oh, you can't? Jesus can. I think I'll listen to him. That's the point of the miracle. I, a guy came up to me after the first service. It was fascinating. He said, you know what else the miracle proves? Is you know how instantly he gave the power for that guy to jump up and rejoice? He also gives a person instantaneous forgiveness of sins. They're done once you believe. You don't need to keep paying at all. That's awesome. Third thing we learn is this. We need to fear the one who forgives. And this may be the most important point. After Jesus tells the man to pick up his bed and go home, the man picked up his bed and he went home. And then look what it says in Matthew 9. It says in verse 7, And the man jumped up, so he jumped up, and he went home. Fear swept through the crowd as they saw this happen. And they praise God for giving humans such authority. So the question is, what were they scared of? Two stories ago in the, in the boat, they were scared of the man. I, I think they're still scared of the man. I, I was thinking about this. If I, if I walked home, let's say I go home and see my mom. So my mom, my, my sister's been out of the hospital a little bit. She's still feeding her, taking care of her. But let's say I go home and I, I walk in a door and I open a door 
My mom's front door, usually her dog greets me and then my mom. But let's say I open the door and I look up and it's my sister Lara talking to me and she hugs me. I, I think I would die. I'd be, what? What's going on? Oh my gosh, my sister's alive and she can talk. I can't believe this. Imagine when that guy's legs all of a sudden they jump and they knew him as for his whole life being lame. That, what do you say to that? I mean, really say to that. That's some fakey thing. You know, like, I think he's, I think it's good. No, it's good. I think I fear my, my sister talking too because I told her a lot of secrets growing up. She knows a lot. They were afraid of this man. But here's the reason why. Go to Psalm 130. This psalm is a puzzle. This psalm is truly amazing. Psalm 130 in just the first four verses. So, it's a man in desperate need. Desperate situation. Psalm 130 says, starting in verse 1, From the depths of despair, O Lord, I cry for help. Hear my cry, O Lord. Pay attention to my prayer. So this guy's in bad shape. Bad shape. Lord, if you kept the record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? We just sang that. If God wrote down all my sins, we're done. And then you get to verse 4, and verse 4, Charles Spurgeon said, starts off with the holiest but you ever read. But, but you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. And that's the strange part. Forgiveness, the psalmist is saying, is what leads to fear. How is that possible? And by fear, there is trepidation to it. Charles Spurgeon says, None, uh, none, no person fears the Lord like those who have experienced his forgiveness. Gratitude for pardon produces far more fear and reverence of God than all the apprehension which is inspired by punishment. If the Lord were to execute justice upon all, there would be none left to fear him. If all were under the dread of his deserved wrath, despair would harden them against fearing him. So let me explain what he just said. So let's say you're in jail, one of those old jails. The jail's that's underneath ground, you know, and it's like a cave and it drips because it's so moist down there. And you're holding on to those rusty bars and they won't budge. And your hands uh, are all leathery because they haven't been giving you much water and you got a potato sack bag on and you're, you're dying down there. You want out, dark circles under your eyes. And then down to the cellar jail comes three men. Two of these men, let's say they're they're huge. They're like the goon squad, but they can't talk. You can't really reason with them. They just look at you like that. But there's a third guy, and he looks really reasonable. He looks very kind, and he's twirling keys, and he knows, and you know those keys are to your cell. So you have two guys you know that could beat the tar out of you, and you have one guy that has keys. Which guy do you fear? I mean, really fear. If it was just those two goons, all right, beat me up again, here we go. <laughs> go ahead, tear into me, but you can't do anything for me. But that third guy with the keys, I want to talk to him. I want to persuade him. He looks kind. I want to plead with him. I want to reason with him. I want to say, let me out. 
And then he takes that golden key and he opens it. And I'm set free. That's the guy I'm going to do anything, whatever you want. I will do it. Those two goon guys, I don't care about those guys. The guy at the key, I fear him. That's the point. Forgiveness softens my heart to the beauty and the wonder of God. Fear, fear really does, like where I can't be forgiven, it doesn't do anything but harden my heart to hate him. But if he can forgive me, oh, I will do anything for him. I'll do anything for him. He's the one person that can determine my destiny. He's the one that matters. He's all that I need. In fact, that's the essence of faith. Faith believes two things. That this God can let me out. He exists. He exists. I, I believe, I, as I'm talking, Jesus can hear me. I wonder what he says. Like sometimes, like, oh, Chris, why did you say that? I think, I think he can see me. I mean, that's amazing to me. But the second part's even better, that he's good. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. I've always wondered this question because it says without faith it's impossible to please God. The question for me is what is it about faith that is the only criteria that pleases him? Why is that the only thing he wants? Why is Jesus so responsive to it? In other words, I could obey him like crazy, but if it's really not faith, it doesn't matter. Faith is what pleases God. Why? Because what it tells him is that I see in him, I see in him everything I've ever wanted. He's all I need. He's the best thing for me. And what's funny in the story of Matthew, the regular people, they see that too. But you notice who doesn't see it? The elite scribes, the doctors of theology, the smart ones who like to tell people what to do because they know they will never come to God by faith because they want to be the ones who are in control. They are working so hard to be satisfied in themselves, they have no room left to find satisfaction in God. And that's what faith is, finding satisfaction in God. His, he's sweeter than honey. Can God heal from the story? Yes. Should we seek healing? Absolutely. Does God want us to cry out for the sake of those we love who are undergoing enormous pain? Yes, a thousand times yes. But we must never, never lose the fact that God's main business is saving souls for, forever. Forgiveness is everything. Are you forgiven? No, but I'm healthy. I can do 100 push-ups. You know, I'm really strong. And I'm on a good diet. Are you forgiven? That's 